Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your hosts, Ben Siders, that's me. And the other guy is, as always, Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in Captain Vienna Press. Uh, we are certified geeks and intellectual property lawyers practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at KirkDMN. Uh, Kirk, Season 3, Episode 2. We have an unconventional recording studio set up today. Yes, we are not in either of our recording studios today. We are uh, not in our library location. We are not in our professional location. We are trying to do this on our phones to see if we can do live episodes. Yeah, we're sort of uh, hunched over chairs right now in a random office. Um, we couldn't get our, our library studio set up today in our regular location. We're going to be circling back to sometime in the next couple of weeks to a month. But right now we're sort of uh, improvising something to see if we can squeeze out some content here this week before Wednesday. And uh, and this is a big experiment for us. So we'll see how it sounds. And if you have any you know feedback or thoughts on that, let us know. And definitely part of the purpose behind this, as I sort of mentioned in conjunction with it, is we have contemplated the idea of trying to do some live episodes. So we need to be able to see what we can take for mics on the road. Yeah, definitely. So today we're going to do a, a little bit of a shorter format. We had actually um, um, sort of a schedule written up through basically June of what we wanted to do content-wise, uh, but then for some reason my Evernote uh, ate it, and I can't find uh, what uh, what we had originally planned. So for today, we are going to do, uh, switch things up a bit. We were going to rotate through a couple of different episode types, but uh, since we, we don't have sort of our master outline, uh, today we're going to do a abbreviated review of The Mandalorian first season and then sort of preview some topics coming up uh, in, the, in the next month or so. So yeah, I think with that space, where we're going to go talk through some basic stuff, but we have not yet talked about the Mandalorian, and that is something we probably should be talking about. Yeah. So, um, so overall, first impressions, Kirk. We were talking at lunch right before this that um, we both, I think, generally enjoyed watching it. Is that fair? Yeah, I definitely enjoyed watching it. Yeah. Um, but I think the one thing that we both found a little off-putting, um, at least at first, was I didn't really grasp when I first started watching it that this was going to be sort of a throwback, like late 90s um, type syndicated sci-fi where you can just kind of plop in anywhere in episode four or five and just watch a self-contained episode that's going to mostly make sense on its own terms. Uh, it's it's not as serialized. It reminded me really of how Star Trek The Next Generation was made where you've got a plot point at the start of each season. They come back to it at the end of the season, uh, you know, pick it up the next season. But in between, there's just a lot of things that happen that don't really necessarily have any connection or bearing to the, the overall story. I think that's a pretty accurate statement as to what it is. I think the the comment we made, and again, sort of returning back to that conversation at lunch, is while it has that format, it seems to have a problem in the fact that it doesn't, you know, contemplate the idea like the, the Star Trek: The Next Generation did of the captain's log at the start, and having this element which tells you, hey, this is the new episode, this is setting up what it is. You just kind of have the Mandalorian arriving someplace else. Yeah, and I think that's just a consequence of the plot structure. So why don't we why don't we start at a high level and just talk about you know first of all for those of you who haven't seen it, we're probably going to get into spoilers here. Oh, we're going to get um, into spoilers. There's not a lot that really happens, um, so I don't know how much we're going to spoil. But if you haven't seen it, uh, go see it, um, and we'll we'll just assume that if you're listening that that you've seen the first season and so you kind of know what happens. We've definitely got into elements of spoilers. I think we're going to have to just because to explain the last episodes, which really do kind of tie yeah. up the season. We're going to tell you what happens. So Kirk, let's let's start with this. Let's do our our, our 
rating scale from a scale of zero to 10 or one to 10, uh, where would you put season one just in terms of overall entertainment value? I'd probably put it like a solid seven, seven and a half. Um, I think it's a very solid, entertaining to watch show. It's each episode is entertaining. It's enjoyable. Um, it's fun just generally in the idea that it explores parts of the Star Wars universe, um, gets into some things that have been sort of less explained and not really discussed. And in a lot of places, I think it also as a show, it does a great job of sort of just being loosely entertaining. Um, the interplay between the Mandalorian and the other characters, obviously some of the running characters, Baby Yoda, who we're going to get into in a bit, but even the the temporary characters are people that are interesting. They're they're not necessarily just archetypes. They tend to have a little bit more depth to them, I think, than than we're used to seeing for third party characters. Yeah, I, I, I think that's about right. And I'm in the same place. I meant like a solid seven or an eight. It was it was good. It was, the production value is there. Uh, generally well directed. Generally well acted. Um, I, I like that it picked up on things that we've been told about in previous Star Wars entries, but haven't really gotten a chance to explore any detail yet. I like that it's in this uh, period after Jedi, but before the First Order, which has been sort of exhaustively covered by books, but not really um, explored visually. It's an interesting part of the universe to get into, but I think what I like the most about it is that the focus of the story was really, really tightened up. Rather than having to have some big, grand epic, you know, there was, there was no stupid, like, random Luke Skywalker encounter, or he flies in somewhere, and oh, hey, look, there's a Millennium Falcon doing something. It was, they got rid of all of that stuff, and kind of ditched all of the baggage of the originals, and um, let this story be smaller, tighter, more focused, and to kind of go in its own direction without having to, you know, pay homage to to you know what's come before which you know eliminates the need for the fan service and and we talked one of the things I thought they did exceptionally well is when you focus a story in like that you can make one ATST look like an incredibly menacing threat. You can make one TIE fighter just be like the bad guy you have to beat at the end. Whereas in the, you know, the saga movies, one TIE fighter is just, it's cannon fodder. It's nothing. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that it really did well is it gives you the idea of this being a small unit action and really the way, in, in some for lack of a better term, sort of the common person would have seen the Empire. I mean, I really love it. I think the, probably the best episode, my favorite episode definitely of the season is the one with the ATST in it. Um, and the fact that, you know, the AT TST is this, you know, almost demonic monster in the way it's presented to the natives of that planet. I mean, one, it's painted up to look that way. They're they're playing it up. But the fact that it's it's this almost unstoppable thing. And you think about it, you know, I mean, this thing's the equivalent of like a super heavy tank, and you've got guys with pitchforks. You know, it's one of those where it, it's a great example of, I think, the the sheer scale and power of the empire, even with the empire being gone, you get the idea that like, hey, you know, just one leftover war machine from this is a complete game changer. And I think that's a, a real valuable sort of piece behind it is the fact that, you know, you, you get the fact that the empire is really, really strong and powerful. Quite frankly, it makes the Death Star more menacing. It does. It puts it puts sort of a, a bottom end of the scale cap on it, and 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 makes these these things that you sort of you know. There's a tendency in in serial storytelling to always escalate, right? So Iron Man One has you know uh, War Machine. No, not War Machine. Who's the bad no. guy? In Iron Man. Uh, Who is the bad guy in War Machine One? Jeff and, Daniels. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> Can't um, be good. It's, I, War Machine's two. Yeah, and then you know, then the bad guy in two has to be even bigger, and in three even bigger, and then we saw this even with the Star Wars movies. You know, seven has to have an even bigger Death Star to blow up, <laughs> and then nine has to have a million Death yeah, Stars to we blow have a whole up. Fleet so of Death Stars. There's this multiplication. 
escalation effect where you know the stakes have to be even higher and the threat has to be even more serious than the last thing or or we feel like we've been cheated somehow like well this wasn't as good as the last one because they didn't overcome as much but it's it's all just manufactured in the writing so it doesn't really matter yeah. right you know, we, we know they're going to overcome it because it's it's a it's a Star Wars movie so for this one to scale the stakes down and go the other direction and to do it largely successfully I, I think is is um, remarkable yeah I think it did a really really good job of scaling the things down I mean even the Mandalorian ship you know you get the impression like this thing's utilitarian this is not a fighter aircraft this is something which is designed to transport in between it locations. looked like the old ship from the prequels yeah and and it definitely has like feel of it you, you notice some things in it sort of and that was one of the things I also thought they did really well is they tied certain elements of the prequels into it I mean when you see his origin story and the idea of him being rescued he's being rescued from dro- from droids the destroyer droids yeah yeah and and we kind of get into the whole who's he being rescued from I mean the, the droids are the trade alliance um but who does that mean he's actually being rescued from? Um, you know, we're pre-Empire at this point in time. Where does the Mandalorian sort of fit into this? Again, I like that sort of componentry of it, of the fact that they they do that um, with it. And to me, it just makes more – it makes better story because we're now telling the story of the Mandalorian and of Baby Yoda. Um, and, you know, it allows it to be that, like, him being in peril alone is important. Um, you know, the example I think of right in the beginning is conjunction with the uh, the dealing with the Jawas and having to go get the egg. Mm-hmm. You know, we get the idea that like, okay, he's fighting a rather nasty monster that he's having to deal with, and it's not the some, mud horn. You the mean. mud horn, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's something where this is not an easy task. This is an individual task that he needs to go do. But it's something which is also, you know, it's scary. It's the Jawas can't do it. Um, we even get the idea of like a Jawa sand crawler being a relatively, you know, major component of this. You know, that's a that's a city, um, and it is. That's that's that what I really liked about it. Star Wars version of a cruise ship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, except it crawls on land and it's full of junk droids. But. Uh, um, well, so what? So we also talked uh, before. What are some of the things that you that you did not like as much? So definitely, a few of the things I thought were sort of poor, I, along with the idea of the the more serialized format and the idea that does it. I really think they did a poor job of introducing each new story. I think we we're kind of expecting to go out and see, hey, this is going to follow on, and it doesn't. There's no connection, but there's also no explanation of like why is he here? Why is he come to this planet? What is he looking for? What is what is going on? He he kind of lacks motivation through I think most of the the the, the first season um, in conjunction with it because it's okay he has baby Yoda he's obviously on the run from the guild which is introduced relatively early why is he going here why is he going there uh, a couple places it's like oh he's going there because he's trying to get money so the one where he meets up with one of his old you know people involved with him and it's he's doing that because of the fact that he needs to make some money and he thinks he can get a job out of this which is safe is that the one where they did the the um, the heist on the prison ship um, they had the heist they had the other bounty the, the other bounty hunter yeah the heist was yeah. the, the one particularly but yeah the other that one, one was also hunter. interesting because you, you saw a little bit of the new republic as being the new government and like a couple of x-wings came in and yeah. once again just a couple of x-wings he hightails it out of there he can't go toe-to-toe with an x-wing yeah well again and doesn't even try you know you're thinking of the idea of taking infantryman versus an f-15 you know i mean <laughs> it's obvious who's gonna win this and uh, and i think that's there even more actually maybe an a-10 because it's a ground attack aircraft um but yeah it's it's one of those where Again, I think they did – they kind of lacked – he lacked motivation in doing some of this stuff. 
between each individual episode, uh, you know, okay, I get the idea that, like, he's hiding. Why is he hiding here? Yeah. You know, why has he come to this location? There must be some reason for this. It's not just some backwater planet. Well, you hinted at this in our in our Rise of Skywalker preview that there's some timing issues with how this story unfolds. And I think that's right. And we, you know, th- this differs from uh, a syndicated show where they kind of know that they're going to have to reorient the audience every time in each new episode. So, you know, Star Trek, they always had the voiceover where Picard says, Stardate, whatever. And then he can just say, we spent the last four months doing blah, blah, blah. So coming into the episode, regardless of whether you watched the prior one or not, four months has gone by since the last one. You don't really have to have watched it to to follow the current episode. But this one, they kind of know it's going to be released in a serial format. Uh, it's not syndicated, and there is an overarching story. So they, they didn't provide that sort of overview and the timing. They, they couldn't. Like, you, you can't just have a two-month gap between when he leaves the last planet and goes to the next one. But you still kind of lack that orientation in the story, and I think they, they try to do a little bit of both, both a serialized and a syndicated uh, approach to it, and, and didn't really co- successfully pull off either one. It's good enough, um, but uh, n- neither one worked as well as it could have if they really leaned either way. Definitely the thing that I noticed in conjunction with the timing is not even so much the timing between episodes, but some of the timing within episodes. And again, I'm going to pick on the ATST yes. episode, I think was a great example. You know, we, we have him arrive on this planet, we get the fact that, okay, these guys are being attacked, these you know, native farmers are being attacked by raiders they're going to be trained to fight the raiders. We don't know how long that training takes, but it seems to take very little time. It plays out very briefly unseen. And I've made the comment before, I think it's because this story is plotted for (laughs) 12-year-olds. Yeah. So they don't want to have, you know, a a two- or three-minute montage scene that that you know the the, the kids are going to check out on. So there's just a couple of short you know seven samurai type scenes, and then we move on. Yeah, and I think that that it harmed the timing because you didn't know how long they were training. But then in particular, and the one that I really noted is it's they defeat the the raiders, and then you have him sort of sitting, being comfortable in conjunction with it. When you have the other bounty hunter showing yes. up to try to capture him, and that timing is poorly laid out too. It seemed like it happened like three hours later, but that's yeah. not like we're, we're then later told he's been there for like a month. Yeah, it's almost later in the same day in the way it's sort of you know laid out, but. Definitely, when you see what's going on, it's not the same day. It's you know potentially weeks, months later. I really thought that would have been something where it would have been nice to have had. And again, you could have done it with a lot of times with throwaway lines. Of, yeah. You know, hey, we've been here for four months, and this is, we've had scene three of these. Because yeah. they comment about uh, – the example of what I use is like the scene from um, – in conjunction with the, the uh, – beginning of Empire Strikes Back with Han Solo where it's the hey you know I was comfortable being with the rebellion but you know those bounty hunters I bumped into have got me worried at this point in time you're like okay time has passed here like a yeah. substantial amount of time has passed between these two movies but at the same time it, the old debts are still being repaid and stuff like that and I really thought they could have done much more with that of just again throwaway lines that would have given us much more of an understanding of how long has this been how long is this taking us where are we going with it um, things like that and particularly in that, and I pick on that that episode in particular, because I think that episode is one of it the really few. It really stuck out in that one. Yeah, and because it's one of the few where it's it looks like he's supposed to be on the planet for a while. A lot of times he's running away right at the end. You know, he's he's trying to get away. You know, you know, with himself and Baby Yoda intact, um, and making sure that he just doesn't have you know anybody on his tail. That he, you know, how quick can he get away? Again, sort of the other thing I think is sort of bumping into the timing issues is the logistics issues. You know, he is flying a spacecraft. That spacecraft needs fuel. Um, we had a stop on Tatooine, which I did not <clears> – <throat> we'll get into that, but I did not like the stop on Tatooine. See, I actually enjoyed the stop on Tatooine episode, but I enjoyed it because I enjoyed the presentation of Tatooine. And I thought there were some potential really interesting subtle pieces to it. So like the example of it is, is he walks clearly into the same bar that – you know, The bartender is now a droid. <laughs> but the bartender is now a droid, whereas previously droids were not allowed in that bar. And I think mm-hmm. that's a, a 
a sort of really kind of thing is like you know, Tatooine has changed. We have seen the changed world. The idea that sort of this is the Republic, but also the bar is pretty empty. Like it was very yeah. crowded when Ben and Luke go into it. But at this point in time, it's relatively empty. There's only a couple, I think him and one the, the person he meets up with and maybe one or two other people in the entire bar. And I think that's a really good presentation of the idea of just how things have changed. And so to me, that episode was obviously a bit of fan service just sort of showing that bar again. But it was really cool to see the idea that like, no, we're in a different world. This is not the world we're used to from Star Wars. It's a different world. I think one of the reasons these episodes have the internal pacing problems is that there's such a small cast and we're not taking the cast with us. Like unlike a Star Trek where all the characters are on the ship, they're all going to the same place yeah. together. We have the Mandalorian, we have the, uh, the baby Yoda, and then the other characters kind of change from episode to episode. And when you don't have a, a bigger cast like that, you don't have a B-plot that you can run through or a C-plot. And usually cutting away to the B-plot or the C-plot is one of the ways that you can convey to the audience the passage of time. So you cut away you know, to the other characters doing something else that you know takes some time. Mm-hmm. Then when you cut back, you have a throwaway line about like, well, we've been training them for three weeks now and they're they're not getting it. So you can convey things that way. This episode or this this series doesn't have that luxury based on how the, the story is written. So I don't know if that's something they can fix going forward. Maybe they will. Um, but I think that's maybe structurally why the, the pacing seems so awkward is there's no other plot to cut away to and then come back. It's the real problem. And I think the, the big thing you get into is that this is one person's story. It's just the Mandalorian story. You've got Baby Yoda along, but Baby Yoda's non-vocal, obviously not somebody that the Mandalorian's going to be interacting with directly other than a few sort of childish encounters. Yeah. But, Saying stop all the time when he tries to play with that knob. <laughs> yeah, he tries to steal the knob and everything else. The uh, the thing that I think you really bump into in conjunction with what are we doing with the, the, the Mandalorian and the, the storyline is you because it's a one-person show, all of his like relationships seem superficial. And it's the one thing I really had trouble with in the end is when they came into the end and it's, oh, we're going to bring back all these people that we've encountered throughout the entire first season. It's going to become a team. Great. I'm like, oh, this is going to become our team. Maybe one or two of these people is going to get killed in conjunction with it, but we have a team going forward. And these are going to become the new Mandalorian team and the people who are trying to protect Baby Yoda. Then you have, you know, multiples of them, you know, die in conjunction with it in ways they're not coming back from. Yes. Then you have... The at the very end, the no, we're just walking away. This is over. Well, at the same time, we kind of leave the fact that hey, the villain's still out there. Mm-hmm. But it, to me, it just that that presents a problem in the fact that it's like. But I liked those characters. I would like yeah. to see some more of them. It was great that you brought them back. But then it's it's almost like you know, hey, you brought them back. This is great. They're going to be here, and now suddenly they're not again. But I also am kind of left with that. Are we going to see them again? You know, is this going to come later on? And is that going to be worth it? Is it going to be good? What are they going to be? Like one of the ones I, I really wondered about is, the, you know, the woman's obviously expressed the fact that she's a deserter. You know, she presumably has bounties on her head. That was her concern in conjunction with meeting the Mandalorian in the first place. Is she going to come back as somebody the Mandalorian is now chasing or somebody that he's chasing yeah. somebody who's chasing? And are we going to see that? Is it going to be something with it? Is that going to become a season two cliffhanger? I don't really mind that as a plot point, but at the same time, I kind of worry is if it's going to go there, where else is it going to go mm-hmm. uh, in conjunction with these things instead of it just being, hey, she's part of it. You know, you can easily have the exact same plot of a bounty hunter coming after her while having her be part of the team. So again, I think my thing with it isn't kind of your comment to the Enterprise. The Enterprise had a crew. We had the entire bridge crew plus a few others. We you have, have an away team. You have a bridge crew. You can have an engineering problem. Like there's a lot of ways to split up the cast and give everybody something to do. Yeah, and you can always have you know the throwaway character that you need. Hey, I mean we need somebody to get shot. Where's the red shirts? But the uh, I think that you know this has just got a problem that it's because it's one person's journey. It's one man's mm-hmm. journey is going to be very difficult for them to figure out how do we we bring other characters in this that have any kind of lasting impact 
to the character without them potentially either looking throwaway or being throwaway and not looking throwaway. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see where does that go. And again, I think a lot of it's also going to be now that they've seen how successful season one was, it may give them some ideas of what do we want to do in season two. You know, do, do they expand this and kind of tell it in a different way or do they stick with this format? I think is an interesting uh, question. Another thing I, I really liked, um, you know, just conceptually, imagine you're trying to pitch to a TV studio. We're going to have a show where the main character wears a helmet for the entire episode, and that's a key <laughs> part of the character, and you only actually see his face and his emotions for about 30 seconds of the entire first season. How yep. receptive do you think the average producer is going to be, be to that kind of structure? Oh, and the, se- the next most important character is a CGI baby that doesn't talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and from what I understand, actually, with the conjunction with Baby Yoda, they filmed all of the scenes for Baby Yoda twice, one with essentially a Muppet and one with CGI, because they were worried as to how exactly would it look. And I think most of the time they're actually using the the Muppet equivalent. Oh, okay. Um, in conjunction. I may be wrong about that. That's stuff I've, I've read in third-party press. But definitely the... I think the, the thing you've got in conjunction with Baby Yoda, it's amazed me at how popular Baby Yoda is. And again, we're, we're coming Baby Yoda, that's sort of the accepted name in conjunction it's with the child, out there. Although it's technically the child. If you go to what they call it, all the toys that are official are calling it the child. The episode is called The Child, at which point in time it's introduced. You know, does not have a name, purposely does not have a name. I assume they've shied away from Baby Yoda because it's probably not supposed to directly be Baby Yoda. At, or at least if it is, we're not supposed that. to know that. Yeah. Um, and so we'll see where that's, you know, that's going in conjunction with it. But What I I definitely liked about it is that gives some vulnerability to the character. It gives him a very clear weakness in the fact that he has to essentially babysit this. Um, You know, he needs to keep it safe. You're given that express command at the end of, hey, this is your task to keep this youngling safe. That's a nice piece of it to just sort of say, hey, he's got to do something. You now know what it is. I mean, you can present peril immediately by simply presenting Baby Yoda is in peril for any reason. Um, And I think that's got a lot they can work with. Again, what I worry about with it is he has no other crew. And so it's it's Baby Yoda's got to be in peril he's got to be in peril or we've got to kind of manufacture someplace for him to go and have peril yeah um one of the other things i did not care for so much are some of the throwaway fan servicey things and i'm not sure <laughs> if it was even fan service or just like like not being thoughtful about it but like you know we saw so we see empire strikes back they have this the tabana gas mine at bespin has this giant elaborate carbon freezing chamber i mean it's enormous right you can fit 25 characters into it uh to freeze this gas for transport and and so they test it on han solo to to make sure it's not going to kill anybody because they don't know if it's going to actually work or not and because and, they kept they have to find a safe way to transport yeah, luke, to transport luke later comes up with this yeah he comes up with this idea so they're going to they're going to use this chamber to freeze luke and they and they test it on han and find it works um and then now um it's it's miniaturized and placed on the guy's ship and he has just a bunch of people in carbonite <laughs> yeah. hang, literally hanging in like a closet um I, I th- that was a little jarring to me i just thought they've miniaturized this technology where it fits on a ship now it doesn't make any sense that's not what it's for to me it makes sense in the idea that he has a small ship how else would you carry bounties he can't go do one at a time he's got to go do multiples so it, it fit the requirement of that but at the same time it, it doesn't fit the technology and i think that's exactly yeah. what we're causing the problem it's there because we know that bounty hunters freeze people and put them in carbonite because we all saw Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, except but for like, the fact that that's not a, what they did. It's not really, yeah, it kind of ignores the context of it. And it's, it's sort of like, oh, this is a thing you've seen before. Here, see it again. Yeah, I think that that was, that was in my mind, that is the real glaring problem in conjunction with it. And they haven't needed it. You know, it's been something where it's just the beginning, hey, this is what we're doing. He has not needed it. He's not captured any bounties. And it never came back. Like, he's yeah. never put anybody else in carbonite. I bet that happens at some point. But yeah, it may have sort of like, though, point. Star Trek, you know, the saucer section can 
separate. We saw that in the first episode, <laughs> and then yeah. never again for like four seasons. Yeah, there's a few things along those lines that definitely, you know, things that like the Enterprise could do that didn't become important until later and sort of things like that. Um, the thing that I think they did a really great job in doing was setting up the concept of the bounties, like the puck, which they reused yeah. repeatedly during the course That's of the, the thing, like of the, the new stuff they introduced, the new ideas, the new concepts, all worked really well, I thought. Uh, it's, it was sort of the clumsy recycling of what we've seen before that... Yeah. that Fell a little flat for me. The only one I thought really worked, quite frankly, is fan service. And I thought I actually enjoyed it and I got a kick out of was the the crumb uh, reference at the beginning with the idea of him being a food, um, you know, component mm-hmm. being sold in the local bazaar. Um, you know, there's one being roasted, oh, right. there's another one watching from the cage. And the idea that's that little guy that was in Jabba's yeah. palace, right? Salacious Crumb Salacious or whatever his crumb, name was. Yeah. yeah. And I think that the, you know, I like that as fan service and the idea that, like, hey, these creatures are common, they're all over the place, and they're they're pets, they're food, they're nothing special. And the idea that the fact that Jabba had one just makes it a pet. I kind of liked that idea you know it's just again a sort of throwaway type thing that i think they did a good job with i actually and, and it was one of those i know we talked about it a little bit i liked the fact that it was jawas and the idea that jawas are sort of ubiquitous they're kind of like you know just everywhere in society that they're someplace because they're scavengers yeah you know it to me it makes sense as to what they are just as a as a you know racial type designed alien so i always that. thought they were just in tatooine and they had a sand crawler because tatooine was a desert planet and yeah. the, the jawas being there i thought was a little strange I mean, it worked well enough, but the, the sand crawler part didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. We were told that this planet has all these crevices, so you have to use the, the Blorg, whatever it's called. <laughs> Little bounding horses, yeah. <laughs> to, to run around uh, and, and get around. Yet they've got this giant sand crawler that presumably can't jump. I mean, unless it's got hydraulics on it or something. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. Yeah, it, it can lower itself and raise itself, just yeah. to, you know, depending on what this quality yeah, of the like, ground like is coming over. Um, yeah, so but so that, that that stuck out to me, too, as one of those things that, were, you know, rather than, rather, and there's, there's an information efficiency though like we know what a java a java is so rather than giving us a new species and new costumes and something new to design and then having to introduce it and explain the backstory we've already got something that serves that role functionally in the star wars universe so there is some some sense to just recycling that it may not be the most um artistic way to go about it but you know the, the art, art art is not the only consideration in making these things there's also budget you know but quite frankly one of the things i liked about the fact that they were used the jawas is we didn't have you know a race introduced solely to make toys out of or something along those lines yeah. we have you know existing races coming into play existing equipment coming into play again the idea that you know the empire is gone but there's bits of it around. I mean, this was a huge military organization which, you know, completely dominated the known universe. The, the fact that raiders have managed to get their hands on an ATST is not at all surprising. You know, it's something where, hey, they found it, they were able to get it functioning again, maybe it did function. You know, how they got our hands on it, we don't know, we don't care. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, but it, the fact is, is that it's this devastating piece of war machinery now in the sort of private hands, and there is no empire to stop it. There is no, you know, the, the Republic coming out of the rebellion is not in any position to stop it. It's too small scale, you know. Again, you know, you send one X-wing, you can blow it up. But why would they be going to this planet? You know, that there's no problem here. It's just raiders. Um, and so I think that that was some of the things that was really well set up as that type of idea. The other thing I really liked about it and just want to talk about it is I really loved the Ugnaught. I loved the fact yes. that he was a character. I thought he was a great character. Very sad to see him die, you know. Voiced by Nick Nolte, was it? Uh, it might have been, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, the thing that I really had from it, I mean, I love the way they did the sort of unique way he talked and everything along those lines. I but have I also, spoken. I have spoken. But I also really liked the idea of him being the, you know, like, no, we were essentially this, you know, essentially slave race to the Empire. 
there. I didn't want to be part of that. I'm on my own now. And this giving him a very strong moral code, which doesn't necessarily fit with the Mandalorian, doesn't necessarily fit with anybody else in the universe, but by which he lives by very strongly. Um, you know, him rebuilding the droid, you know, the idea that like, no, this is wasted parts. You do not waste parts. You know, I will take this assassin droid and turn it into a nursemaid. I mean, you know, those kind of things as to what it is. I really thought he was a cool character. I thought it was very sad to see him go. I also really liked the interaction between him and the other characters Mm -hmm. because he was Empire, but he was not Empire by choice. And, you know, the interaction between him and the the rebellion drop trooper, I thought went very, very well. I just thought it was some of those things yeah. where it's the, these two do not trust each other and they have good reason not to trust each other. And the Ugnaught provided the sort of moral center for the story. Like somebody has to be the older, wiser advisor that doesn't really have a direct stake, but can kind of sit back and, and dispense advice and and, and give, give the main character somebody to talk to so we can have some character development. Yeah. And he, he provided that really well. He definitely was kind of the mentor figure. And Definitely. I mean, the Mandalorian needed a mentor figure when this started. I think you had the idea that he was one of the questions I had with it is, you know, you get the impression how long has he been a Mandalorian and you get the impression not that long, at least not as a Mandalorian bounty hunter, at least not sort of doing what he's doing. You know, there's a lot of discussion of the fact that he's the best bounty hunter that's out there and things along those lines, but like his armor is very incomplete. You know, he gets a lot of components of his armor near the end. At the same time, it's, it's clearly that he has some of it. And so the idea of, you know, he's been at this for a while, but he may still be a little bit junior. That was the other thing I liked about the Tatooine episode. I liked the idea of there being another bounty hunter, him kind of being a mentor figure to that bounty hunter. I thought, unfortunately, that it, it just the motivations that led to a lot of what happened in that episode didn't make sense. A little clumsy. Yeah, it was the a little writing clumsy. was a little clumsy. And the ending of it, to my mind, just made no sense. The you know the idea of the oh well you know I can get a greater bounty on him, so let me kill this bounty. Well, why don't you take her? Isn't she acceptable dead? You know most of these bounties I think are you know dead or alive at least. You know maybe it's a reduced amount, but why don't you just keep the body and at the same time she's so dangerous why on earth did he the Mandalorian leave him with her with him you know why didn't they just shoot her and take her with him you know which in my mind it's the kind of thing where and and a little bit of this may be coming from the idea of Han shot first, quite frankly. Yep. The, the Star Wars universe has to be a bit brutal, and it's it works a little better when it's a bit brutal. I mean, it, it's the reason why I've always had trouble with the fact of them removing that scene is not because of the fact that I think it was just an original scene or whatever it is, but it sets up Han's personality. You are in an Old West backwater saloon. People die in the saloon, and the extent of what happens is them throwing a few credits to clean it up. You know, I mean, I really like the idea that that's just sort of how brutal that place is. This is a backwater world. And to have that kind of come out of the the Mandalorian of this, you know, hey, he's a bounty hunter. He's a ruthless bounty hunter. He sees completely through his the initial catch right at the beginning, the sort of lickfish man that we encounter at the beginning. Um and yet he doesn't see completely through this skilled assassin. And again, it's the, why on earth would you take this person in alive, you know, given what they are? You know, and it almost would have worked better, I think, had they have been dead, other than the fact that you need you need her to turn the other bounty hunter. But I'm not sure you needed that. Again, I think he could have figured that out enough enough on his own, you know, as, as to say, hey, I'm going to turn on my, my erstwhile ally and everything else. So again, that was, there were parts of the Tatooine episode I really loved. There were parts of the Tatooine episode I really hated. And that was kind of the really hated to me. Again, the plot just didn't quite stick, even though the, I thought individual scenes were very cool and a lot of the sort of nature of the universe now, that it isn't quite so brutal of mm-hmm. a place, uh, did a great job. So other than the first and last episode, what was your favorite one? I think definitely without any question, it's the ATSDS episode. Um, and the reason I really love that episode, one, you have the presentation of the Mandalorian as being, for lack of a better term, human. Um, 
you know, it, you know, in conjunction with it, the idea that, you know, hey, he's interested in settling down. He doesn't necessarily like this life, but it's part of him. It's what he has to be. Um, the interaction, I think the, the woman who played the drop trooper was definitely the, you know, besides the Ugnaught, sort of the most interesting character he encountered. I still think she's one of the most interesting characters and definitely the one, one of them, the most left alive. Um, I really would like to see her come back because I think her character is really interesting. And the idea that, you know, she's a rebellion trooper, you know, now a Republic trooper that's deserted because of what she's being asked to do, which sounds a lot like Stormtrooper-esque. Mm-hmm. And I really like that idea that they're sort of saying like, hey, the, you know, any government here may be dangerous. You know, that's why there's a rebellion. That's why we have these kind of things going on. So I really liked her. I also, and, and quite frankly, the best part of the episode is the ATST presented as this just beast demon thing. You know, its eyes are glowing red. It's painted in war paint. Um, but it's a single unit. It's a single sort of great thing that these um, these raiders have and how much of that is built around this. I mean, they are raiders because of this thing. That's what makes them successful. The farmers fear it because they don't understand it. They don't know what it is. Um, and it's this leftover piece of technology that's out there, which the Mandalorian knows what it is and he knows how to fight it. He knows how to destroy it. Um, and at the same time, you get like the, the operator where it's the, hey, I'm not going to step forward. I know not to do this, but yet he can be provoked because you've got characters that actually know how the war works that are used to fighting these things. You know, again, it'd be the equivalent of saying, you know, I'm going to take a, you know, a farmer with a pitchfork and face them off against a, you know, you know, M1 Abrams is entirely different than if I'm going to face the same, you know, M1 Abrams with a skilled infantryman who's been trained in anti-train training. You know, it's a totally different play, and I think that that really worked. So prognostication: Who is Baby Yoda? <laughs> who is Baby Yoda? Well, and, and maybe more interestingly, are we going to find an entire planet full of of Yoda things? Or is, is Yoda sort of unique? I think the idea is definitely Yoda's supposed to be unique. I have the feeling that we're going to find... I don't think he's going to be connected to Yoda. I think he's going to be another one of the race, but I'm not sure he's going to be directly, directly connected to Yoda. He may be tangentially connected to Yoda. I just don't think that he's going to be directly connected to it. I think the idea is going to be that these things are rare, um, that you know it's, it's a, essentially a dead race or dying race. He shouldn't exist is sort of the way I kind of looked at it. What I worry about is are we going to go to the midichlorians created him? And I don't yeah. think we're going to go there. I think we know enough not to go there. But I could definitely see that being something where they, they could take it. But what I'd like to see in conjunction with it is that he's not necessarily directed to anything directed to the trilogy. We just know he's powerful force user because of his race, because this is what he is. The, the one thing I've, I found very confusing about all of this is – um, you know, in the in the prequels, we are told that Yoda is the head of the Jedi Council, and uh, Yoda also winds up being the main general in charge of fighting the Clone War. Yeah. So you would think he would be one of the most famous people in the galaxy, and and the fact that we have Jedi Knights and that they have these powers should be well known, right? Because there's Jedi's <laughs> fighting all these battles and all these planets, and we all live through the Clone War, and then you know that seems to have been forgotten over the course of like not even twenty years. Yeah. Uh, in the sequel or in the the original trilogy and then we get to the sequels and and again nobody believes in any of this but then the mandalorian they don't recognize that that the, that the child is a yoda yeah. like oh it's kind of like yoda the guy that used to run the entire galaxy or even that yoda has a race that you know again we yeah. don't know what his they race is they don't know what the is. force is i mean i mean the, even the guys in the imperial senate they all knew about jedi's and religion and that kind of stuff they thought it was a bunch of nonsense and it was sort of dying off but yeah. 
it um, kind of goes back to the Star Wars, in some respects, the specific Star Wars beginning with the, you know, ancient religions, you know, stuff like that, you know, Han's comment of the just, we don't believe about it. And then you kind of get that as well in episode seven, and the idea of, you know, it's nobody believes in this. My take of it was in the, it's always been my sort of explanation, quite frankly, for a lot of these things in conjunction with it is it's a big universe. Yeah. And so the idea is even the Clone Wars didn't necessarily affect everybody. You know, we're not talking the the, the, the Clone Wars is, is the equivalent of World War II, which affects, you know, every sort of, you know, yeah. person on a planet or person in the on universe. On a galactic scale, it's the Falkland Islands, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so there's a lot of people that, you know, would rapidly forget about it or wouldn't necessarily know what's going on. Or no, it just didn't affect their lives that much. Yeah. And quite frankly, there aren't that many Jedi. I mean, if you look at the idea of the Jedi Council, you take, you know, the end of, you know, episode two, there's not that many Jedi. Um, you know, there's still rest of the coming. You can believe them being written off as simply being a legend, being something as to whatever it is. Yes, the we've number heard the about this. Dozens but, or hundreds, maybe, we to believe. Yeah. Although we see classes of incoming children and there's like 20 people just in the class. Maybe they don't all make of it. To assume some don't make it, some may die, you know, stuff like that. Some are just the producer's kids who wanted to roll in the movie, yeah. Um, oh, then this is where episode eight, you know, although I thought it was well done as a story and a standalone film, its its approach to the material kind of screws up the storyline because now we're told, oh, being a Jedi is nothing special. Everybody has the Force or anybody could have the Force. Yeah, and I think that's the, the thing. with it. I, I like the ideas in some sense there's superstition surrounding the Jedi. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that like, hey, this is known as to what it is. I mean, as, as bad as this is, I kind of like the idea of Star Wars being a little bit more of a backward universe. Yeah. I mean, remember, it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So the idea is we, we have almost sort of, you know, mystical nights and things like that where we can have errors of communication. You know, we can have technology where the, the, they don't really communicate. I mean, they've talked about this even in conjunction with the expanded universe. You know, we've got the, you know, the outer rim. We've got these sort of components of the galaxy where there's just no understanding of what it is. I mean, in some sense, that's what Tatooine was. And it kind of lets you tell a story there and give it some room to breathe. And maybe this is where the the sequels also kind of got off track is you had to go back and revisit these characters and follow up with them. And then it's kind of hard to tell a new story from there because you're just – you're always dragging the anchor of everything we already know. And the Mandalorian had a little more discretion to get away from that, and they did for the most part. We've got the Baby Yoda thing, but like you said, he's not really connected or tethered to anything we know yet. So it will be interesting to see where they go with that. Uh, But hopefully they they lean into that part of the story and really explore more of that part of the Star Wars universe and and give us some interesting, cool, new stuff without having to constantly go back and recycle the same things. Yeah, I think the big thing for me in conjunction with this and the thing I would most like to see in conjunction with The Mandalorian is seeing some of the connection. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in it is when you first encounter the uh, the you know Empire First Order you know leader coming after the group coming after Baby Yoda. You get the transition. This is a transition general. You know, we are coming out of the Empire. I mean, you see him have essentially First Order troopers that he's working with and he guns down the stormtroopers of the idea like sort of, hey, this is the creation of this new world order. This is coming into play. But he is a TIE fighter. He just is a standard TIE fighter, doesn't even have a flex-wing TIE fighter. Um, but that's also very modern compared to a lot of what we've seen. You know, we've seen X-wings and things like that. But the that, that was the thing that I really liked about that episode, quite frankly, is I liked the idea that, hey, this is going to be a transition. One of the biggest problems, I think, in conjunction with the sequels is where the heck did the First Order come from? You know, where Apparently did they Apparently it's found? covered in some of the secondary materials. But, well, we're told Palpatine was doing it all this time. Let's yeah. just... 
That's, I, I don't know. It's it's lazy. It's lazy and lame. Yeah, it works better, I think, with the idea that they have it. What, what again, I also think, and, and I've seen definitely some of the side press talking about the sequels and stuff like that. One of the big discussions in them is the fact that, hey, you know, the movie's a standalone movie. It doesn't really need to be canon. Canon's kind of a dumb idea in many respects. The point is, is it a good movie? Do we enjoy it? But you can't really avoid those things. What I do like the fact that they're doing in The Mandalorian is kind of saying we can't avoid all those things. We can just tell a sub-story about something that isn't really that important here. All right. Well, we're going to wrap this one up. So we have um, we're going to be back recording uh, regular episodes in a couple days. I think Thursday we're going to go record. That sounds right. Yeah. And then I've got uh, a vacation. I'll be out of the country in a couple weeks, so we may have a rewind episode in there. But we're going to try and get uh, regular content out to you that is more professionally <laughs> produced. Uh, we'll be back to Cool Fire, our normal place. Uh, they have. Uh, we were just talking the other day. They have the best sound quality by far, much better than my iPhone. <laughs> uh, and even the library's facilities, which are nice, uh, are, are tough. It's tough to beat uh, what they've got. So we'll be back there um, and, and rolling out uh, new content to you over the course of the year. And uh, we're really looking forward to it. I think the thing we've really get into with this, and again, you know, we mentioned it right at the beginning, and it's worth noting. Part of the reason we're doing this, we are experimenting with different formats. Even the library was a different format. The real goal behind this is to recognize the fact that you know we know a lot of podcasts are put on using you know phone technology, using basic microphones, things like that. We've talked about the idea of wanting to potentially do live episodes, do episodes of things like when we are at IP law conferences, something yeah. along those lines where we can meet up and have a guest on that we may not be able to have otherwise. Or just when big cases come down that are yep. relevant to what we want to talk about. We want to be able to sit down and record. So this is sort of an attempt to record low stakes <laughs> low stakes content uh, quickly uh, and to see what we can do. And that was part of the reason for doing this is sort of a low stakes episode. I mean, hey, we're only going to talk about The Mandalorian. It's not like we're going to get into anything in detail here. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So on that note, I also don't have my call sheet, so I can't I can't read us out. So uh, we're just going to wrap this episode up. Uh, Lorem is around here somewhere, and he will, as always, lay us out. Views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 